The year was 331 B.C. In the third of the great empires from Daniel's prophecy in Daniel chapter 7 had arrived on the world stage. An unlikely empire led by a boy king by the name of Alexander of Macedon, known to history as Alexander the Great. Alexander had mustered a relatively small army of Greek soldiers and crossed into the mighty Persian Empire in an attempt to conquer it. Two decisive battles had been won by Alexander already through his brilliant generalship, choosing the field of combat with his features and terrain such that he had been able to neutralize the vastly superior Persian army. So by the year 331, the western half of the Persian Empire now lay in the possession of Alexander. But he wasn't satisfied with half an empire. He wanted it all. And that meant that he had to face the might of the Persian army one more time, or at least he hoped it would be only one more time. The difference here, though, was that it was going to be on a battlefield of the Persians' own choosing. Darius III was the Persian king, and he chose a place to engage Alexander in combat that was a wide open plain. His army outnumbered Alexander's five to one. Stretched out in battle array, it was two and a half miles long, the Persian army. They had chariots, scythe chariots, whirling blades on the wheels. The open, flat ground would give a strategic advantage to these chariots who would come in and slice Alexander's infantry to pieces. Alexander's generals urged him to not enter combat. This was not the right place, they said. All the ground was to the enemy's liking. Alexander, all the strategic advantages lay with them and not with us. Don't fight here. Don't fight now. The brilliant general said, we will fight in this place. And so he surveyed the battle site over a period of a couple of days and developed his strategy by which he would take on the might of the Persian army. And so he developed his plan. And simply put, it was this. He positioned his cavalry on his right flank. And behind them, he hid his They're called pelters, those who would throw stones or short javelins. And they rode parallel to the Persian infantry ranks, the Persian heavy infantry. And they rode along at a very slow trot parallel to the enemy lines, concealing their pelters behind their horses. Persian infantry had never seen this tactic before, and they didn't know what to make of it. They didn't know whether they should remain face on to the the Greek phalanx that was sure to attack, or should they turn ever so slightly to keep up with this moving foe that was crossing in front of their ranks? Undecided, some turned, some remained fixed. Opening up gaps in the Persian lines. At the strategic moment, Alexander signaled, his pelters came forward and they they put a hail of stones and short javelins upon the Persian center. The confusion that ensued, Alexander pivoted his cavalry and he struck diagonally into the heart of the Persian infantry, ripping a hole in their ranks and driving directly towards the throne of Darius III to kill him and to seize the day. Under that kind of attack, the Persians broke and they began to flee and they were slaughtered piecemeal. Meanwhile, the brilliant general had determined a plan to deal with the Persian chariots. As they approached the Greek ranks, the Greeks parted in front of them. 
the horses naturally were drawn towards the openings in the Greek lines. And so they entered what we called mouse traps. And then the infantry surrounded them and slaughtered them. Beastmail. Neutralized Persian cavalry. Sliced through the Persian heavy infantry. And carried the day. Not long after this, one of Darius III's own generals murdered him. Alexander entered into the capital of the mighty Persian Empire and took to himself the title emperor, and there was no stopping him. He went all the way to Afghanistan. Alexander the Great, one of the most brilliant generals to ever walk the face of this earth. Open your Bibles up to Romans chapter 13. We finish our time here in Romans 13 this morning. Page 1137, if you're using a pew Bible. We finish our time in a context of of war and conflict. Our big broad outline for this whole chapter, this manifesto for Christian citizenship, is simply put this way, that we are to value our government, verses 1 through 7. Last week, as we learned, verses 8 through 10, we are to love our neighbor. And finally today, the the third leg of the triad of Christian citizenship is that we are to restrain our flesh. We are to restrain our flesh. This morning in verses 11 through 14, the Apostle Paul gives us a three-part battle plan for restraining our flesh. So that we might live a radical Christian citizenship. You know, the church of Jesus Christ, since its inception, has struggled with looking more like the world than like their Savior. It has been a perennial problem. It is our problem today. It was their problem 2,000 years ago. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 29 that we have been predestined to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We have been predestined by the sovereign God of the universe to be made like Jesus Christ. But the process sometimes is almost imperceptible. It's slow. It's faltering. What is true of us today was true for them. The power of sin is very strong. We struggle with recurring patterns of sin in our lives. The writer of the Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 1, it calls it the sin that so easily entangles us. We all have our stuff. We all have those areas that we, it seems like we win and we lose and we win and we lose. We're no different than those to whom Paul wrote. Beyond that, there are tares in the body of Christ, the church. False believers that grow up among us. They damage our corporate testimony. Beloved, the world is watching us. It wants to know, is salvation real? Have we really been changed? Are we really different than they are? We don't look any different on the outside before and after a conversion. So what's changed? Do we live at a different level, a different plane than they do? Not by our own strength, but by the power of the indwelling spirit of God himself. This is what citizenship for a Christian is all about. Living for Christ in the midst of a broken and fallen world. And it's critically important That we wage the war against our flesh as part of that demonstration of what it means to be a follower of Christ in this world. We're at war. I hope you realize that. We are at war with our flesh. That is the, the lingering proclivity to sin that we all experience. And to fight this war effectively, we need a battle plan. 
We need to know where we're going. We need a strategy that will enable us to win. And Paul gives us just that here in these few short verses. He gives us a three-part battle plan. You know, the Puritan John Owen, he wrote many things, most of which, most of which are very difficult to understand. But he said one thing that's not hard to understand. It's a very short statement. He said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. That's short enough that we can all grab onto it. It's so profoundly true. I'm involved in a war for my soul. And so are you. Paul gives us a strategy to fight it. So here it is, very simply for you. The first part of this battle plan for victory is we need to think rightly. We need to think rightly. Let me read the text for you, beginning in verse 11. And this do, Paul says, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to be awakened from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. The first part of this divine battle plan is that we need to think rightly. We need to think about the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ could return at any moment. At any moment. It's interesting, by the way, how Paul closes out this section here. Where he says, this do knowing the time. He, he's calling to their remembrance some fact about the gospel. It's interesting to me because it's really kind of how he opens this section up at the beginning of chapter 12, right? Turn back there, remember that, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Where there he says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that is, that he is calling them to remember what he has just taught them in chapters 1 through 11, the gospel. So there he, he urges them to think about their position in Jesus Christ, who they were, what Christ has done, what they've been saved for now. And because of that, as they think on these things, they are transformed in their mind and they begin to live a godly life. That's how he opens up all of chapter 12 that bleeds over into chapter 13. As he closes this down, and it's almost like bookends, he does essentially the same thing. Verse 11, chapter 13, he says, this do knowing the time." He wants us to think about something. He wants us to remember something. This time, though, it's not calling our attention to our sinfulness. He's not calling our attention to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He's not calling our attention to the indwelling Holy Spirit. He's calling our attention to the fact that Christ is coming again. He is calling us to remember the return of Jesus Christ. And it's interesting how he does it. He He uses imagery here. Look again, verses 11 and following. He uses imagery that is drawn from a society that had little or no access to artificial light. We take it for granted, right? You flip the switch and on come the lights. Not true in their day. Their society essentially lived from sunup to sunset. And so when he speaks to them about the night is almost gone, the day is at hand, he's, he's speaking in the language of their day, talking about the rising of the sun. It's time to get out of bed, basically, is what he's saying. The sun is almost up. The day is almost upon you. You're done with sleeping. Get up and get at it. Don't laze around. Get with it spiritually. Knowing the time, he says, verse 11, that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. What is he talking about? He is speaking of the fact 
that salvation has three components. There is a past tense component. I was saved when I believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. It has a present tense component. I am saved because I am believing on the Lord Jesus Christ. It has a future tense component. I will be saved when Christ returns and brings me home to glory. And so here he is looking forward into the future. And he's calling their attention to the fact that Jesus Christ is returning Someday, and when he returns, their salvation will be made complete. They will finally be delivered from the effect of sin and death. That the war will finally be over. The battle will finally be won. No longer will they be harassed by sin. This is the doctrine, by the way, of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imminent, it just means any time. That is, that the Lord Jesus Christ can return for His church at any point and at any time. And they understood that reality. Paul understood that reality. And he said, because of that, we must live a certain way. Throughout the Scriptures, the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ is given to the followers of Christ as a source of power for spiritual living. One of the reasons, by the way, I believe the church is weakened today is because there is little attention given to the teaching of prophecy. Little attention given to this absolute reality that Christ is coming again. That life is not all there is, is what you see here. For example, Philippians chapter 4, don't turn, I'll just read these to you. Philippians chapter 4, verse 5, Paul writes, Let your forbearing spirit be known to all men, The Lord is near. Why are we to forbear with people? Why are we to hold up patiently with people? The answer, because the Lord is near. Christ is close at hand. He could return at any moment. James chapter 5, verses 7 through 9 says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Be patient. He's right at the door. First John chapter two, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. So we may not shrink away in shame at his coming or Revelation chapter 22, verse seven. Behold, Christ says, I am coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And there are many, many, many other statements in the New Testament that speak about the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and use it as a motivation for holy living, for fighting the good fight. Beloved, we have short memories, isn't that true? We have very short memories. We are constantly... Forgetting who we are in Jesus Christ, our our spiritual birthright in Christ, our destiny in the kingdom of Christ when it comes. We get caught up in this world, the world, the flesh and the devil. They're constantly clamoring at us and causing us to drift off the mark, to carry our thinking away, to catch us up in the things of this world and forget who we are and where we're going. We need to be reminded We need to be regularly reminded that we are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and that when he returns, there should be no doubt about our family resemblance. No doubt at all. First John chapter three and the first three verses. The ancient apostle writes, see how great a love the father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. The doctrine of the imminent return of the Lord Jesus Christ, the rapture of the church, is a purifying doctrine. 
When we forget that Christ can come at any time to snatch us away, we get caught up in the things of this world and we, we forget our, our heritage. We forget who we really are. Our family resemblance begins to dwindle. My family and I are leaving here in just a day and a half or so to go back to New England. Probably most of you didn't know I was from New England, but if you would listen to me speak long enough, you would know such things. We're headed back to New England for a couple of weeks of vacation and for two family reunions. We are getting together with Carol's side of the family, and then we are having a reunion with my side of the family. We are going to see people we have not seen in a very, very long time, and it is likely we will see people we have never met before. One of the things that really interests me, particularly for my family reunion, is to take a look at family resemblance. There is a Forsyth ear, and I'm interested to see how many have it. A family resemblance. Well, John says we need to have a family resemblance of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we focus on that reality, the Spirit works within us. And He purifies us. We say no to sin because we want to look like Christ. This is part of preaching the gospel to ourselves. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is part of the gospel. It is not something band-aided onto the end. Something optional that can be left off. Some secondary doctrine that nobody cares about. The return of Christ for His church is a summation of history. It is part of the gospel. And we need to preach it to ourselves because it is a purifying effect upon us. It is the first of our battle plan. That is to think rightly. Christ could return today. And the question is, are you ready? Are you? Hmm? Think rightly. Secondly, Behave rightly. Behave rightly. We are to think rightly and we are to behave rightly. That is, we are to put off and put on, to use the terminology of the Apostle Paul. Picking it up here in verse 12, the second half. Let us, therefore, lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy. The result of thinking rightly is behaving rightly. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. You will never rise to a level of personal holiness greater than that level at which you think about yourself and about the world and about Christ and what He has done. If your mind is in the gutter, do not expect your behavior to rise to a higher level. It begins with thinking rightly and it follows with behaving rightly. Notice Paul says, the second half here of verse 12, let us therefore, you see the therefore. When you see a therefore in the Scriptures, you ask yourself, what is it? Therefore, it's therefore because it's drawing a conclusion. Because of that which has gone before, it is now drawing a conclusion. So it's saying, because of this, that you know that the time is at hand, that the hour is close, the sun is rising, the night is over, Christ could come at any moment because you know these things. Therefore, this is how you should behave. Right behavior consists of rejecting sinful patterns of our unconverted past and embracing the values and the patterns of godliness consistent with our new nature in Jesus Christ. It consists of rejecting the past and embracing the present and the future. Our position in Christ. To express this dramatic change, Paul uses the language of taking off articles of clothing, and putting on other clothes. If you like, take off the grave clothes and put on the royal robes of the son of the king. Change your appearance, your attire. 
Paul uses this, by the way, several times, much more extensively. He uses it over in, in Ephesians chapter 4, right? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 22, and really runs through the end of the chapter. Put off the old man, he says, put on the new. And then he begins to give detailed illustrations of what that looks like. He picks it up in Colossians chapter 3, verses 8 and following. Same idea. Put off, put on. Put off, put on. Well, that's what he's talking about here. Now, we need to remember, we are not talking about initial salvation. Paul is writing to the believers in Rome. This letter is addressed to those who have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ for their redemption. They are justified according to chapter 5 and verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having been justified, they stand justified before God, wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So it's not about salvation. It is about sanctification. It is about holy living. It is about being conformed to the image of Christ. It is about looking like our Savior in our attitudes and our behaviors. The command to put off and to put on is in reality a a command to renounce the old way of life and to embrace and live the new. It's a command to, to begin to live like who you really are, not like who you once were. You're a son of the king. Start living like it. Stop living like the son of the devil. It's the ethical component of the gospel. There is an ethical component. You know that. Because we have been saved, we cannot continue to live like we once were before we were saved. Something has to change. It is a submission to the lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is this by our own self-effort? Is this by our own hard work? Is this pull yourself up by your bootstraps, tighten your belt, pull your suspenders, and get with it? Is this the Nike swoosh, just do it? No. No, it is done by the power of the indwelling Spirit of God as we rely on Him. And as He washes our hearts and our minds through copious quantities of the Word of God that we take in on a daily basis. We are transformed in our thinking and our transformed thinking leads to transformed behavior. So this is not a gospel of self-help, self-effort. This is a gospel of relying on the work of God He has done in you and is doing through you and that you cooperate and begin to obey the leading of the Spirit towards holiness. For after all, the Spirit of God is called the Spirit of holiness or the Holy Spirit. Spirit, and he jealously desires his own. The Spirit of God cleanses our hearts as we in faith begin to live the life he's called us to live. Now, specifically, look back at the text here. Specifically, what is it that Paul is calling on them to do? What is it he wants them to put off in particular? He calls them deeds of darkness. You see it? Verse 12, the end. Lay aside the deeds of darkness. Paul, what are the deeds of darkness that you want us and them to lay aside? Well, he gives an illustration for us. He really just illustrates it, and he illustrates it through a series of three couplets. Three couplets that he gives to us here. He puts them in pairs or couplets. And by doing that, I think he's actually linking the ideas together so that it becomes not six things to put off, but three to put off that are compound ideas. Verse 13, not in carousing and drunkenness, first couplet. I believe what he's really communicating here is drunken orgies. Drunken orgies. Put off the deeds of darkness. Like what, Paul? Like drunken orgies. That's what you're to put off. These first two couplets, by the way, carousing and drunkenness, sexual promiscuity and sensuality, they fit very nicely, don't they, within the overall metaphor of deeds of darkness. The fact that the the, the sun is rising, the night is over, put it away. You don't live like that anymore because these are indeed the sins of darkness, the sins of night. 
Listen to me, young people. No good thing happens after midnight. Okay, you got it? You belong home. You belong home. Nothing good happens after midnight. It is in the dark hours, the wee hours of the morning, when people are tired and their defenses are down. But immorality runs rampant. Put off these deeds of darkness, these sins of the night. These things that flourish in the secret and the dark places. Where people foolishly think no one knows what's happening. God knows. God knows. There's no place for these kinds of gross sins in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. No place at all. They are the lifestyle of a child of the devil. They are the lifestyle of a child of darkness. And yet now, even as they were then 2,000 years ago, they remain a constant threat to the people of God. Listen to me. There's only one way. There is only one way to avoid this kind of lascivious behavior. Are you ready for it? Run! Run away! Do not linger like Lot's wife. But it's fascinating to me, the third couplet here. Strife and jealousy. Do you see it? Seems out of place. I'm reading about drunken orgies. I'm reading about sexual promiscuity. I'm reading about sensuality. And then I'm reading about strife and jealousy. Hmm. Seems out of place. I mean, this is not the, the gross and vile immorality of the, of the wicked heart before Jesus Christ. These are the respectable sins of the followers of Christ, right? These are the things that go unconfronted. I mean, that's just kind of the way I am, is the attitude. I just have a nasty temper. I got red, well, I don't have red hair, but, you know, one of those deals. Sorry, all you redheads. Sorry, one redhead anyway. <laughs> Fascinating to me. Respectable sins. But Paul says that these are deeds of darkness. These are things that have, should have no place among the people of God. These are the things, by the way, that destroy the corporate testimony of the people of God. When churches are jealous and scrapping with one another and strife is going on and the outside world hears about it. And believe me, beloved, they do hear about it. The people in this community are very aware of what goes on here. Far more aware than we probably realize. They're watching. And when we can't get along with one another and we claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ, possessed by the very Spirit of God, made one in the Spirit, we will soon celebrate such an event, right? And yet when we give in to strife and we give in to jealousy, we absolutely destroy our testimony before the living world. Our Christian citizenship is called into question. I think Paul includes this here because it is these kinds of, of relational sins that deeply wound the body of Christ. They're a direct attack on the unity of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 3, Paul says, For you are still fleshly, for since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? Oh, Corinthians, because of the jealousy and the strife in your midst, you do not look converted at all. Now, beloved, the remedy for this is not to just stop doing it. Just stop it. I wish it was that easy. Come into my office for counsel. Tell me what you're doing. And I'll just say, just stop it. And you go, oh, okay. <laughs> Thank you, pastor. It's more to it than that, isn't there? But there's nothing, it's not less than that. We must put off the old man. We must cease from participating in the deeds of darkness. But we must put on the deeds of light. Notice how Paul speaks of it here. 
Verse 12 at the end. Lay aside deeds of darkness. Put on the armor of light. There are metaphors going on here. The armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day. Verse 14. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to cease sinful behaviors and attitudes and then we are to replace them with godly attitudes and behaviors. Empowered by the Spirit of God. By the way, these, these three expressions are essentially related. Put on the armor of light. Behave properly as in the day. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. These are not separate things we have to do. These are all related metaphors speaking of the same thing. That is the constant embracing of the Lord Jesus Christ through the gospel. That's what Paul is telling us is the remedy for deeds of darkness. Stop participating. Turn from it. Turn to the righteousness of Christ in the gospel and embrace it. Continue to preach it to yourself. Continue to remind yourself of its truth and then act upon that truth. Behave properly, verse 13, as in the day. Beloved, we're in a spiritual war. We are absolutely in a spiritual war and God has given us a battle plan. And the first part of that battle plan is we need to think rightly. We need to remember that the Lord Jesus Christ could return even now to take us into his presence. And because we're thinking rightly, we need to behave rightly. We need to put off the old man. We need to put on the new. But there is a third aspect. There is a third aspect to this battle plan. And it's simply this. We are to take no prisoners. Take no prisoners. There is no room to compromise. This is a, this is a battle for our soul. There is no room to compromise. Verse 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ into the verse and make no provision for the flesh in regards to its lusts. Take no prisoners. Make no compromises. Listen, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's essential that we sever all the deeds of darkness. All those relationships that drew us into darkness, all of the behaviors and activities and, and ways of thinking, we need to be done with them. We need to cut them off. And we need to replace them with godly thoughts and godly behaviors and godly relationships. We need to sever the realm of darkness and walk as children of light. The new life in Christ is diametrically opposed to the old life. And we must not let that old life retain a toehold in the new. Take no prisoners. But here's what happens. What happens is we want to negotiate. We want to bargain with God. Oh, we wouldn't express it exactly this way. It would be too crass. Oh, Lord, I don't really want to give up that. So what I'll do is I'll substitute a righteous behavior. Let me retain this secret sin. And I'll more than make it up to you. With my righteousness, with my worship. This is the sin of Saul. This is the sin of Saul. Substituting, attempting to substitute worship for obedience. Turn back to 1 Samuel 15, page 297. Let me refresh your memory. Saul had been told by God through the prophet Samuel that he was to destroy the Amalekites, the ancient enemy of God's people. He was to utterly destroy all of them and all that they had. They were under the ban. Verse 8, chapter 15, 1 Samuel. And Saul captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And he utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep 
the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good, and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless they utterly destroyed. The word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. So Samuel, verse 13, came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. And Samuel said, Well, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen which I hear? Saul begins to make his defense and he says, well, you know, I killed most of them. I killed most of them, but I but I've kept a few. Verse 15, we the people, they did it. Actually, it wasn't me, but the people, they spare the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord, your God. But the rest we utterly destroyed. We did everything you said, God, except we, we kept these because we want to offer worship to you. Verse 22, Samuel said, As the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Don't miss the point. God is not impressed with our worship. God is not interested in negotiating our obedience. God does not want us to mostly obey Him and for the places we can't and we won't to substitute our worship instead. He wants full obedience. He wants us to take no prisoners with sin. Verse 32, then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. And Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. You know, like, let's let bygones be bygones, right? Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord. I always wanted to preach a sermon entitled Hacking Agag to Pieces. I might do it one of these days. My kids were young. We would do our Bible devotions. They love that story. Especially my son. (laughs) Tell it again, Dad. How did he hack them to pieces? What's the point? The point is that's our approach to sin. That's what it needs to be. Listen, we need to get out the sword of the Spirit of the Lord and we need to hack it to pieces. We need to cut it off. We need to take no prisoners, make no compromises, cease trying to substitute worship for obedience. Make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts, Paul says. Romans chapter 13 and verse 14. Beloved, this is what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must win this battle. We must win this battle. We must understand that we don't fight it and win it in our own strength. Christ has won the victory. Do I hear an amen? He has won the victory. He has broken the bondage of sin and its power and death and its sting over us. By faith, He has given us His righteousness. We stand fully perfect in the sight of God the Father, wrapped in the robe of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. But there is still the ongoing reality of this life. We are called to fight a fight. We are called to emulate Christ. And to stand firm against temptation and sin. We're called as citizens of another kingdom to live in such a radically different way from those who do not know him that people look at us and their first conclusion is you are from another planet. What is wrong with you or 
What is right with you? Or why are you like this? Boy, am I glad you asked. Boy, am I glad you asked. Can I tell you what Christ has done for me? Let me tell you how God has changed me. And then preach the gospel to them. Preach the gospel to them. Don't put your Bibles away. I didn't tell you to do that. Unless you've got it memorized, you keep it out. Don't sheath your sword yet. We're not done. <laughs> we arrive at the table together. Oh, do I love this table. I love what it represents. Gentlemen, would you join me, please? Isn't it amazing how God has given to us this visual reminder? The kind of, the kind of message that we've just heard, it could be so discouraging. None of us holds up on our own. We all fall short. But see, we come here. And we're reminded once again that Christ did not fall short. That He has ultimately won the victory for us. That as we take of the bread and drink of the cup, we are visually reminded that Jesus Christ has died in our place. That sin no longer has a grip upon our soul. We're also reminded that when we mess up and we fail and we fall, and we do, that salvation is readily available in Christ. This renews our faith. Since I told you to keep your Bible out, then go ahead and keep it out. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Where is that? Page 1149. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until. Huh. Here he comes again. Until he comes. Can't escape that reality. Christ is returning for us. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You remind yourselves over and over and over again, Christ died for me. Christ died for me. Now, there's probably some here who cannot make that statement. In a crowd this size, there are undoubtedly some here who do not know that Christ has died for you. You cannot make that statement. If you have not, by faith, thrown yourself upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ, if you have not embraced the reality of His death on that cross on your behalf and in your place, if you have not turned from your sin, repented and said, Oh God, save me through Christ alone. then this reminder meal is not for you. There's nothing to remind you of. This is given to those who are part of the family. I'll also tell you this, there's no time like today. There's no opportunity like now to call out on Jesus Christ. I won't make you stand up. I won't make you come forward. I won't, I won't do any of those things because you know what? None of those things have anything to do with it. Right now, right where you are, call out upon the Lord Jesus Christ in faith to save you. Oh, God, be merciful to me, 
a sinner. I believe that you died for me. The Bible says that you shall be saved. And then take this meal with us and celebrate the reality of what Christ has done for you. Oh.